0: I have a friend of mine who lived in Markleyville. It's here in the Sierras. And basically, the fireman knocked on his door and said, You've got 10 minutes to get out. And he got out with his guitar and I don't know, the clothes on his back. And that night, he's watching television. He sees his house burn up on television. Welcome to How To. I'm Slate
1: Senior Producer Shayna Roth filling in for Carvel Wallace. About two years ago, a wildfire broke out in the western foothills of the Sierra Nevada. It quickly turned into a massive burn blazing through the community of Grizzly Flats and heading for South Lake Tahoe, home of this week's listener,
0: Joyce. At night, like the sky was red, it's like hell on earth. I mean, I don't know another way to put it.
2: There, we have fire burning on both sides of Highway
0: 50. Look, you're seeing those flames come up behind those cars. We are in a position right now where we're gonna have to think about getting out of here in just a few minutes. So I'm glad you guys came out to us, but I wanted you to see this. Fire has entered the Lake Tahoe Basin. It has crossed to the downhill side of Highway 50, and you're seeing the smoke really
2: flying over our heads. in this
0: It burned thousands of acres and totally burning out of control. We were experiencing wildfire smoke for not days, but weeks on end, I know of people who were like seeing flames down their streets and things like that. And as it got closer, stuff's falling from the sky. I just couldn't stand it. And watching the evacuation map, where is the fire now? Constantly looking at that, wondering, should we get out? And they had not issued the mandatory evacuation. Well, we didn't wait. We just said, nope. And I think actually that was a good thing because we were able to go through each room and say, what is it that we can't replace? I took my musical equipment and got a fireproof bag and put all of those important papers in that bag and just took it with us. So we had all of that. You you've been saying we, who was with you? Oh, my when husband. You okay. <laughs> and my parrot. So <laughs> you can imagine what it's like driving out of here with a parrot in the car screaming. <laughs> oh my gosh. You mentioned that the sky
1: itself when you left was like hell on earth. Yeah. What did it feel like when you saw clear sky?
0: So, where we went first didn't have clear sky. Mm -hmm. They were inundated with smoke. But where we went next, we went over the summit and we're at like 7,000 foot elevation higher, maybe 8,000. And we were on the other side of Donner Summit, which is a very high mountain peak here. The sky was like bright blue, like high elevation blue sky. And I was—I I don't know about my husband, but I was—he t- was like, "I just need something to drink." <laughs> he didn't care. He just wanted to sit and just be quiet for a bit. But for me, I was like blissed out seeing this sky. I don't know a way to put it. It's like, you know, the the video of the guy with the double rainbow. Oh my god! <laughs> know that. Ooh, it was yes, like that. Yes, they do. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. <laughs> It was like, oh my God. Ever since then, I don't think a day goes by where I don't look out the window and go, oh good, the sky's blue, everything's fine. It's like my way of knowing, yeah, it's all good, everything's okay. Because that, I, I just don't even, there's no words for it. It was just absolutely fantastic. How long had you lived there? And
1: when you moved there, were wildfires something that you were worried about? Well,
0: we've lived here maybe 20 years at least. We've had fires, but they were never like that. They could not get a hold of this
1: thing. What has your experience been like these last couple summers? And then, as far as I know, you also don't get to relax in the wintertime either.
0: (laughs) Well, this summer we've been blessed, but the last couple of years, the Tahoe Basin is like this bathtub that just seems if there's any Sierra fires burning, if it's blowing in this direction, smoke goes in here and it's kind of sits there for a while. We had a few days, not many, but it was just like, I can't go through that again. It's like, I see the smoke and uh-oh, do I, the first thought is, do I need to evacuate? And I am start thinking, do I have to go through each room and decide what I need to take again? So there's that. And then in winter, it's been like this last year was really, (laughs) this last winter was very challenging with so much snow. And it's not uncommon for the power to go out and not for just a few hours, but it can go out for like several days. Makes you weary. I don't know another way to put it. It's just, I'm so tired of it. I think that feeling of being tired
1: probably resonates with a lot of us right now. I mean, I live in Michigan and while we haven't had local wildfires yet, like much of the country, we've been dealing with the smoke of the burning forests over in Canada. In fact, Michigan has experienced more than its share of historic weather events in recent years. There was this historic deep freeze of 2019, a historic flood in 2020, which caused this dam to break and absolutely devastated the area. And then there was a historic snowfall as late as May. I mean, are you sick of hearing me say historic yet? But in some ways, I feel like we've had it easier than others this summer. This
3: morning in the latest chapter of a mounting climate crisis, severe heat from coast to coast. As
0: the temperature shoots towards a record-breaking 120. From
3: the city that never
0: sleeps to the city that can barely breathe. New York briefly topping the list of world's worst air quality We're Talking Tuesday. about historically off the charts, ocean temperatures to the degree Huda, that marine scientists who have studied this for decades tell me they have never
1: seen anything like this. Right now, the water temperature- And where does that leave us? Worried, hopeless, probably, and like Joyce, tired. It seems like there's so little anyone can do to turn this ship around, so we're just sitting here, sinking in our feelings. But we don't have
3: to be, which is where this week's expert comes in. My name is Britt Ray, and I am the director of the special initiative on climate change and mental health in Stanford University's medical school in our psychiatry department.
1: Britt recently wrote the book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. And so she's going to help Joyce and the rest of us do just that. She'll explain why we need to change our approach to climate anxiety and how to deal with those big feelings so we can move forward together. Stay with us.
4: Let me
1: take you back to 2017. Long before this summer's extreme weather, Dr. Britt Ray had her first brush with climate anxiety.
3: It's when she was thinking about having kids. Knowing what I know about the severity of the climate crisis, trends, the fact that, yeah, this is bad and this new abnormal is scary and feels terrible to confront, the problem is that it doesn't stay here, it gets worse. It gets worse and worse the longer that we do not act. And I was squaring this reality with the dramatic lack of action and the cowardice in our leadership and the corporate malfeasance of the fossil fuel industry, which has been knowingly sowing doubt about the dangers of their products and causing our culture and society to lose precious time. All of that... Really amounting in this scenario where I have to be honest with myself. Do I trust that this is going to get better based on what I've been seeing? And do I feel comfortable committing a new person to this situation, right? By having a child. When dealing with all of that, an explosion of anxiety and grief erupted within me and anger. I just thought, wow, maybe, (laughs) maybe this is showing up in other people's nightmares in different ways. Um, And so, That led to research on the mental health impacts of the climate crisis, which became the book Generation Dread. We've mentioned
1: climate anxiety or eco-anxiety. I know uh, I have it. Joyce (laughs) has it. I think it's fair to say (laughs) we have this
3: type of anxiety, and it's different from other anxieties. Right. So people hear climate anxiety, and then they immediately think, oh, anxiety disorder, a new kind of anxiety disorder. What's the cure? (laughs) Um, You know, once you get a diagnosis for it, what do you do to, to get past it and recover? And there is no diagnosis. Mental health researchers and clinicians have risen up in consensus to say we should never see it as something to be cured because it's this rational, appropriate, adaptive response to a real unfolding global crisis that threatens our civilization. (laughs) It's a compassionate response of care, it can be a badge of our humanity, you can see it that way, to feel it at all when we notice what's being lost already in the climate crisis and we understand trends implying that this is going to get worse. So that is really different from an anxiety disorder that someone experiences as, for instance, catastrophic thinking about events that will likely never occur that starts to impair their functioning. Because here we're already seeing people dying on the pavement in Phoenix, Arizona during extreme heat simply because the pavement is so hot that they get third-degree burns that kill them. That is horrific. So
1: here's our first insight. Eco-anxiety or climate anxiety is an adaptive response to real threats. Therefore, it's separate from other anxieties. But... That doesn't mean it doesn't co occur with other difficult emotions, too, like grief, anger, and sadness. That's all real, which is why it can feel really
3: invalidating when people dismiss your feelings by saying things like, Don't be so dramatic, you're fine. You know, climate change is a hoax. <laughs> You've got an anxiety disorder, you should go talk to someone about that. There are many many cases, I can't tell you how many folks I've spoken with who have gone to a therapist to talk about their nightmares now being filled with climate events um, or just generally getting very depressed about the track that the world is on. And the therapist, if they're not climate aware, treats them in that way as a pathology, and then they go home feeling misunderstood and many times worse. Mm. So it's important to get that validating container from the get-go, knowing that people will um, hold up a mirror to what you're going through and share stories of their own. I like hearing
0: that my responses have been very rational because I have had friends and relatives saying, oh, you know, maybe you should go and I've got a name of a therapist and all of this. And I didn't feel like I'm in an irrational place. That's really good to hear that, that this is a sensible response to what's going on. Absolutely, it is.
1: Joyce, how do you respond to friends or people that you talk with who are not on the same page as you, who are not as climate distressed as you are? I, I know for me, when I run into that, it's very frustrating. Well,
0: it dep- I guess it depends on the environment because at a party, let's say, it's Fairly rude to say, I don't want to talk about it, blah, blah, blah. but, you know, in a one-on-one conversation, I basically just let them know this is how I'm dealing with it or, you know, uh, yeah, it's still bothering me. And, thank you know, I understand that it's out of care and out of concern, but also to say, you know, thank you. Or I'll just listen to them and go, okay, and then <laughs> let it go just because it's an easier way to end the conversation.
3: I totally understand that no one wants to be a bummer. <laughs> and turn others off. and It's not easy to talk about this stuff at the water cooler, or at the dinner table often. And this, you know, discomfort with the idea of being offensive to others is causing more harm in our culture at large because the more that we don't talk about it, the more it feels like it's not that important and the perpetuating of the silence prevents us from holding our leaders accountable and voting on this issue and doing everything that we can in our communities to build up resilience and, and lower emissions and on and on. So I think it's really wonderful and important to congratulate yourself when you do talk about it and to try each day looking at it as another opportunity to get comfortable being uncomfortable and bring it up once again and to find strength in that and be proud of yourself. Here's our next
1: insight. You don't have to be comfortable being uncomfortable on your own. For some people, it's worth talking to a climate-aware therapist, which, yes, that's a thing the Climate Psychiatry and Psychology Alliances would be a good place to start. And we'll link to a bunch of resources in the show notes. But it's also good to remember that you may not be as alone in your
3: community as you think. We have a lot of polls showing that people consistently overestimate how many climate deniers there are out there. And so when, you know, almost 7 out of 10 Americans are actively very concerned about the climate crisis. That means we're in good company and we can reach out and talk about ways in which we can, yes, support each other with the anxiety and grief, but also organize in our communities to help get us on the right track.
1: Britt, you've talked in the past about this task shifting approach. And Joyce, I want you to hear about this because I'm curious if this is something that you would be interested in. It is where lay people can be trained to help their neighbors with things like anxiety and depression when trained by specialists, even though they have no previous
3: psychological expertise. Right now, there's a shortage of specialists to provide mental health care to those in need. There's a really inspiring project in the South, in the US, around black men's mental health that recognized that barbershops are a really great place where people can connect and where a man is in a chair sitting open to exposure to ideas from the barber. And they trained barbers on how to use mental health interventions and then spend that time with their client doing psychosocial support in a way that you never have to call mental health care. It's not going to the therapist, but it's learning how to effectively Um, take shared ownership of our mental health and well-being in the place where we're spending our time. So that's really exciting when we're thinking about people who are deciding to stay in disaster-prone areas and have to think about wildfire smoke coming um, over the hill or sitting in the basin that will affect what they can breathe and how safe they feel or dealing with, of course, actual wildfires threatening their home, um, as you've been sharing with us, and what it means to build psychosocial resilience in the places where we live, how we can come together and be part of community-minded healing interventions, essentially.
1: I love that you use the example of the barbershop, because I've heard plenty of women say, you know, I don't go to therapy, but I do go to my hairstylist. It is (laughs) when you put it in that space. I think people really understand that. And it makes sense. And it doesn't feel like a woo woo sharing circle kind of a thing. Uh But it's that community sharing. And so Joyce, how do you respond to that task shifting approach, or
0: as I'm going to call it, the barbershop approach. (laughs) Or the salon approach. (laughs) I mean, I think it sounds really promising. I've never seen something like that.
1: Projects like that are really exciting, and they're important since a lot of individuals directly affected by the climate crisis don't have access to the resources they need. But amidst all of this, it's important to remember to take care of yourself. Which is why, after the break, Well, here's some useful strategies for calming ourselves down when it all gets to be too much. Don't go anywhere.
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
1: on how to to help you navigate the climate crisis slash peri-apocalypse we're currently living in, the best way to support the show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Signing up for Slate Plus helps us help all the people you hear on our podcast every week. Members will never hear another ad on our podcast or any other Slate podcast. You'll also get free and total access to Slate's website. Plus, you'll be supporting our important work. So I hope you'll join. If you can to sign up now, go to slate.com slash how to plus. Again, that's slate.com slash how to plus. Thanks. We're back with Dr. Britt Ray, author of Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, and Joyce, a musician in South Lake Tahoe. Joyce wants to know how to deal with eco-anxiety, especially as climate change has brought more and more threats to her front door.
0: I don't even like looking at the weather maps they show right now because they're all the colors of, like, (laughs) evacuation maps. And just avoid that kind of stuff as part of protecting myself. But there are times when it's brought up and I'm not expecting it, and that's when it's kind of rattling. I practice gratitude daily because I find that I'm not going to the awful place in my head. You know, I'm looking for the blue sky, so to speak. And, you know, I'm spiritual, so chanting and meditation and those kinds of things actually during the evacuation somebody reached out to me and gave me a really lovely you know a meditation to follow then just really daily exercise and just really you know focusing on what i'm doing um it's not ignoring things but i just think it's really healthy to do that joyce what's your meditation so the meditation it's a visualization But, you know, they say that falling raindrops is calming. So being able to just close your eyes and feel falling raindrops, you know, just slowly falling, cooling sensation of that, you know, and even doing this laying down, you don't have to be seated or anything, but doing this laying down is really just a lovely calming
3: visualization. Knowing how to regulate our nervous system and ground ourselves is just absolutely crucial. I have found in my own climate distress journey that mindfulness meditation is the most powerful way of helping me on spiritual and psychological and existential levels uh, sit with the uncertainty about how bad this crisis may become. So... Protective factors um, also include things like flexible thinking, <laughs> finding ways to go beyond black and white ways of confronting the crisis and thinking that it's all doom and gloom and all we can do is think of the earth as hospice now and, you know, reach out and tell someone that we love them before. And um, really, we're in the gray zone in the middle <laughs> where efforts from all of us are needed and we need to bear witness to suffering um, at the same time as improve the odds and, and work for climate justice. So... That flexible cognition is a marker of well-being. Um, there's lots of research around that, and and ways of helping to remind yourself of that can be really psychologically refreshing for for taking on the crisis and not giving into fatalism, despondency, or letting despair become your overall analysis of the situation. Even if you feel despair at times, because that's totally okay. Then there's the self-efficacy piece. Um, finding ways to know that you can act and and make a difference that matters. And um, self-care, you know, Joyce is doing it and that's so important. I mean, it's incredible how much depression can be dealt with by sleeping well and eating well and fitness.
0: Part of it too is just making a decision. You know, I find that if I'm uh, just in daily life, not sitting on the fence about anything, but just Mm. making decisions, makes me feel like I have some power over my life. And, you know, even during that evacuation, the action of going through each room and making a decision about what are we taking.
1: What Joyce just
0: mentioned, taking back some
1: agency, some power, is really, really important. It's actually one of the best ways to deal with climate anxiety. And it can be small things like, Picking your valuables up off the floor of your basement if you're worried about flooding or packing a go bag so you have peace of mind. It can also be things as big as organizing protests to make your voice heard or contacting your elected officials so they know you're worried about this issue. Whatever makes you feel more in control.
3: Another key piece of all of this that's important is what it means to prevent traumatization in the first place, not just respond to it or respond to very significant distress, which can turn into anxiety and depression, um, but to create conditions in the places where we live that will protect us even as hurricanes, wildfires, floods roll through. And so there's also a lot of research around that from disaster psychiatry. And essentially what it tells us is that communities who have high social capital, which is the ability of residents to come together and achieve shared goals so they can cooperate, they can lead, they can follow. All these things are undergirded by trust and social connections, social ties. So how do we get high social connectedness? We do what humans do. We're super social creatures. We love to love. We reach out. We build relationships. That Infrastructure needs to be in place well before a disaster comes in order for it to prevent traumatization and allow us to rebuild faster in the wake of disaster. At least for me, I know the few things I did to prepare
0: made me feel empowered. And so I think that any kind of prevention on this other basis of
3: just getting to know each other is really good. Right, Joyce. And that empowerment you felt from taking those preparatory measures yourself. Imagine if there were a town hall where you and your neighbors could come together and talk about, hey, what are you doing to prepare? I'm thinking about this. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I tried this. Oh, that's perfect for me. And from addressing environmental threats that you care about in the places where you live, you actually come to make new emergent decisions together and achieve shared goals together and end up getting community supports that build resilience for the entire area in which you're living and not only working in these individuated households, right? So that's what's been called the pearl in the oyster by a leading climate mental health researcher named Helen Berry for doing what the climate crisis requires of us to protect our mental health. Britt,
1: you've talked about a lot of things today. You've given us just a wealth of information. What is maybe the most important point or points that you'd really like our listeners, if they take away nothing else, they take away this and hold
3: this with them? That there's no such thing as coping with climate anxiety long term if it isn't paired with action. Mm-hmm. And that it's really important for us to feel our feelings, to not try and smother them and paper them under the surface or try to overcome them. That it's no sign of weakness to feel distressed by what's going on and that we can release the negative feelings about having so-called negative feelings because it's the self-judgment and shame that makes them much harder to deal with. And when we can liberate ourselves to know that this is an appropriate response and it's a caring response, then we can see what insights those difficult emotions have to show us about what's really going on and what the needed response ought to be and how we can play a part in that. So in this way, it's about sitting with the grief, letting it move through you, transform you, strengthen you finding community who share this awareness and affective dimension and then getting to work and acting but all of it comes together you know it's feeling it's thinking and it's acting joyce has this been helpful
0: oh yes i mean it it, it's helped me to think about this in a larger picture so hopefully that it's it's going to help some other folks Thanks to
1: Joyce for sharing her story with us and to Dr. Britt Ray for all her useful advice. Make sure to check out Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Do you have a problem that is making you anxious? Send us a note at at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we might have you on the show. If you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson, Kevin Bendis, and Jabari Butler produced this episode. Merritt Jacob is senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created How To, and Carvel Wallace is the host. I'm Shayna Roth. Thanks for listening.